Well, if you'd open your Bibles to uh, Genesis 14, that's where we're going to be this morning. I had a chance also, while you're turning there, I had a chance to talk with Paul Holmes yesterday, called from Seattle to let us know that Connie's surgery went very well. And without giving you a lot of, a lot of detail here, they were prepared to do four procedures, and they only had to do two. Uh, praise God for that. And so we're, we're uh, just praying that the Lord would give her a quick, speedy, full recovery and um, what you should know specifically how you could be praying for her right now, she's in a lot of pain, um, and uh, not many of us handle pain well. So that's how you can be praying for Connie, just that that, that, that pain would uh, be minimized, that the doctors would help her uh, manage that well, and that she'd be able to relax in that and uh, continue to heal. So um, let's pray before we go to our message this morning, and then we'll dive in. Father, I just want to express my thanks and appreciation that we have a trustworthy God. Uh, Father, even in, even in death, we find comfort and hope knowing that our future is secure for those of us who have trusted you as Savior. And that makes all the difference. And Father, we also know that when we come to you with illnesses or battles or difficulties that um, seem impossible, that um, we find a powerful God who can do as he pleases. So thank you for your power, for your trustworthiness, and for your love for us. And Father, I pray that as we look into your word now that we would be um, reminded anew of the goodness of who you are and of your love for us. So thank you for this passage and thank you for this man, Abram who teaches us so many things about you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this past year we had the opportunity of, of uh, watching the Winter Olympics, and uh, I'm, I guess that many of you probably uh, uh, took that in and enjoyed it. There was quite a controversy, actually, this year, and sort of later on in the Olympics, maybe you, you caught wind of this. It had to do with the Canadian women's hockey team. And uh, interestingly enough, they were... Uh, very successful. They, they won the gold medal, and uh, they celebrated wildly after they had, had, uh, had won it. They went back into the locker room, and they began to celebrate, and they uh, apparently uh, their mode was uh, drinking alcohol and smoking cigars, and that's what they wanted to do, and, and, uh, and so that's what they did. The criticism actually came up when they took their celebration from the locker room and returned to the ice, and then publicly uh, kind of displayed their enthusiasm in a way that seemed to uh, kind of anger um, a lot of folks, and it became a very interesting debate on uh, how a person celebrates and what they have the right to do. The bottom line was, though, that they were criticized for the way in which they handled their success. That was what became the issue. And interestingly enough, the passage that we're looking at this morning in Genesis 14 has a similar lesson for us. It, it has the lesson of looking at and considering how we handle our success in life. Last week we looked at in Genesis 13 and, and we saw, uh, we kind of the title of the message was Failing Forward and we looked at our, our friend Abram and saw his, uh, how his past failures, he was able to use and, and indeed fall forward and, and learn lessons and, and do well because of them. And in this chapter, in chapter 14, we find that Abram has this incredible military victory. 
And, and instead of being uh, sort of the, the typical flawed guy that we've seen up to this point, he's on top of the world. And he has an incredible success. And so the lesson this morning is not failing forward, but winning well. How do we handle those times in life when everything seems to be going very well for us? Do we continue to trust God in those moments? The chapter that we have in front of us this morning, to be honest with you, is a complicated one. Uh, It has a lot of names, hard to pronounce, if you can pray for me. Uh, It has a lot of places, equally hard to pronounce. And there's just a lot going on that takes some time to explain. So you can turn to the person next to you and say, Courage, brother, or courage, sister. And we'll all dive in together here. But basically, I'm going to try to organize, I'm going to try to make sense of this for you and try to organize the whole message around two questions. The first is this. Do we trust God with our difficult battles? And the second is, do we continue to trust God after hard-won victories? And that's what we see in this, this particular passage this morning. Basically, what we encounter here in this, this passage in chapter 14 is the first battle in Scripture. The first time we see a major conflict emerging like this. Look at verse 1 with me in, in chapter 14. At this time, Amraphel, the king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedraliomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Birshah, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these later kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, the Salt Sea. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedraliomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Everybody got that? You with me? Let me see if I can try to make some sense of this here. I've got a map, and on the back of your handout you have a couple maps as well. And they'll kind of help you make sense of of the storyline that's going on here. First of all, we have basically two alliances. There is an alliance of what we're going to refer to as Eastern Kings. And there are four of them. And this is kind of their, their homeland and where they come from. And basically the story that we're looking at here, to try to keep it nice and simple, is kind of a story of bullying for the most part. We have this strong coalition of forces, these eastern kings over in the Mesopotamia area, and they have subject to them a group of folks down in the the Jordan Plain, in that area, just south of of the Dead Sea. And they are essentially, these eastern kings are essentially the bully, and these Jordanian kings pay tribute to them uh, and and are, are kind of a vassal nation state to them. They're subject to them. And so there's kind of this bully relationship, and it it goes on for year after year. It says 13 years, this was their relationship. And, in, and at that time, the, uh, the guys getting picked on said, enough. We're not going to be inferior to you anymore. We're not going to pay this tribute to you anymore. And so they basically rebel. And you can see here again kind of where, where this, uh, this area is. Um, actually, we'll get back to this map in a second here. But basically, these Jordanian kings rebel against the eastern kings, and they say, we're no longer going to give you our lunch money. Thirteen years is enough. And so they, they stop paying this particular tribute. Well, the eastern kings, this, this coalition uh, from Mesopotamia, don't take too kindly to that. They're used to getting the lunch money. They like the lunch money. And so they're going to come back down, and they are going to pay a lesson to these uh, rebels and basically squelch them uh, 
and, uh, and try to keep this insurrection from going any further. So the eastern kings come down and they suppress what actually we learn becomes a widespread rebellion. Look with me in verse 5. In the fourteenth year, Caterleomer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Raphaites, and this gets difficult here, help me Lord, and Ashtaroth, Carnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shavah, Kiriathim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran near the desert. They, then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as, far, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazan, Tamar. Did you get that? Yeah, I don't know. Can you imagine how many maps and dictionaries I had on my desk this week? So this is, this is what we've got. Now, I hope I wanted to show you something in verses 5 through 7. Did you recognize that none of these names seem to match the names we were given in the first portion? They're different. What's going on here? And basically what we learn, we'll go back to this map here, what we learn is that as these kings, as these eastern kings that are, are allied together come down to squelch this rebellion, they come down what is known as, oops, they come down as what is known as the king's highway here, and they are attacking one, one region after another all the way down this highway before they get to these other five kings allied together down in this region here. In other words, this is not just four kings against five kings, but this is four kings who are set out to squash this rebellion of this five-nation alliance. But along the way, there are many others. And they pick them off one at a time. And at first we might look at this and say, you know what, there's just way too much information here. Why all these names? Why all these cities? What in the world are we supposed to get at this? Here's what we're supposed to see. We're supposed to recognize the strength and the intelligence of this eastern coalition. We're supposed to see that they are in fact a formidable foe. First of all, and it shows up in a couple different ways. First of all, uh, they're at- as they're attacking these individual cities, they show their military savvy. They make sure that they attack each one, one by one, successively as they head down the king's highway to their final destination. They don't want to leave any rebels or any adversaries there who, once they get down to the south, can come around behind them and encircle them and entrap them. So they have a good military plan. They have a good strategy. They also have remarkable strength. This is the second way Uh, that we we see that they're a formidable enemy. They have remarkable strength in that they can, hundreds of miles from their hometown, can continue to sustain war one successively after another. Right there in the King's Highway, where everybody knows they're coming, and they wipe out one region after the next. This is a powerful, powerful force, a bully force. And that's what all of these details are trying to Show us. Third point here. The eastern kings punish and plunder the Jordanian region. I'm going to bring all this together in a little bit, so hang with me. I know this is, this is kind of technical. Verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedrleomer, king of Elam, Tadal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of them fell into them, 
and the rest fled into the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and then went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. A couple things here. Again, we see the remarkable strength of these of this Eastern coalition able to execute uh, one victory after the next and then have the strength to take on an alliance here um, at the bottom. And we see that they basically pulled this off flawlessly. They only made one mistake. They picked on the wrong family. And they took Lot, uh, nephew of Abram, the one who had, been, had received the covenant promise from God that he would be blessed. Everything else was just textbook perfect battle but they picked on the wrong family interestingly enough here too something about Lot do you notice the progression of Lot's compromise first off uh, we saw last week that he when presented with the opportunity from Abram of choosing a land he said you know when Abram said if you go to the right I'll go to the left and vice versa Lot chose selfishly and he didn't recognize the generosity that was being given to him by Abram and didn't reciprocate it but he chose for himself And then it says that he set up his camp near the city of Sodom, where there was known to be great sin in the city. And now in this passage, where is he living? He is living in the city itself. Lot's progression of compromise has taken him all the way to this point, and it has resulted in his captivity. Verse 13. One who escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Anar, and of, and of whom were called or were allied with him. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. You can see where that is on your map on the back if you care to look. During the night, Abram divided his men and attacked them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus, which is off your map. And he recovered all of the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. And so what we see here in this last kind of movement of this section is that Abram pursues and defeated the eastern kings. What's interesting is this is just said so matter-of-factly. This mighty force that has been described to us, able to sustain battle that far from home with that many successive victories and then routing an alliance of five nations all away from their homeland, now carrying plunder and everything with them. And Abram and his 318 skilled men and a few allies that he has with him go up and rout this incredible, incredible force. It's said matter-of-factly here But what we need to recognize that this is an incredible and improbable victory. This is something that isn't done in one's own strength. And we're meant to see that God was empowering Abram to be successful in this victory. We're meant to see that Abram's remarkable faith and trust in God's promise to him led him to the point where he could confidently engage in battle. Because he knew that the Lord was with him. And so I want to bring the question back again. Do we trust God for our impossible situations? For those battles that we are confronted with that seem impossible to win? Do we believe that God is on our side? Do we believe that that God is there and can help us with what faces us, with what we have to confront? 
And I think something that we have to consider here, that there's a real tension in the two points that are being made in this passage. First of all, we see that trusting God isn't always passive. It's not always saying, I'm not going to do anything because the Lord will take care of it. But in this case, Abram steps forward in battle and engages the conflict, engages the impossible situation because he knows he has a God who is with him who has promised him blessing and success. And so he has the sense that he's invincible because the Lord is with him. In this case, Abram's trust allows him to engage the situation. And I think we need to learn here that trust isn't always passive. It isn't always sitting back. It may be taking on something that seems hard or impossible. It may be engaging in that hard conversation. It may be confronting something. We might have to trust God enough to do that. In this narrative, though, the the more subtle attack, the more subtle threat to Abram is not this, this frontal assault of an impossible battle, but it actually comes in the second half of it. It comes when Abram is wildly successful. That's, that's the real battle that he has to face with. How will he handle his success? Who will get credit for the victory? What will be done with the spoils of war? How will this affect the promise of God's blessing? How will it affect God's reputation and his name? Will Abram continue to trust God? Or will he trust in these hard-won resources and his successful military campaign? And so the second point, the second question that we need to ask as we go forward in this story is this. Do we continue to trust God after hard-won victories? Henry Nouwen has said, it is often our success that can endanger our soul the most. Look at verse 17. After Abram returned from defeating Kedraleomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Now I want to show you something here. Basically what we see is these two kings coming out and greeting Abram. And this passage, one of the things, you could study this passage so many different ways, and it was, almost, it was very difficult for me to try to arrange this for how I wanted to present it this morning, because this passage is just loaded with contrasts. And, and one of the contrasts that we see here is a contrast of these two kings. But think about from the beginning, we have a contrast of two alliances, the eastern kings and the Jordanian alliance, and how they come together. There's the contrast of Abram and Lot as individual men. There's the contrast of Abram's loyalty to Lot when he's kidnapped in contrast to Lot's disloyalty the chapter before when he chose selfishly the land for himself. There's the contrast of Abram's righteousness and Lot's slow and steady compromise. There's the the contrast of Abram's where he's dwelling. He's living in tents in the mountains, trusting in the Lord and, and listening to the Lord for where God would have him go. While Lot's dwelling is in the city of sin. And now we have two different kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. And they're greatly contrasted here as as this unfolds. And there's another interesting thing that's going on in this text. There's actually a key word. It's used 28 times in this passage in chapter 14. Can Can you think of what it might be? It's the word king. 
28 times the word king appears in this passage. And it seems the whole time there's this tension that we're wrestling with, with who is really the king? Who's the sovereign here? You could make the argument that Cadre Leomer, that, that he, is, he is the, seems to be kind of the chief among this, this sovereign alliance from the east, and, and they come down and have wild uh, success in their military campaigns, and the argument could be made, this guy is, is the one with power and authority. He seems to be the sovereign. You could also make the argument that these Jordanian kings, ultimately they come out victorious, uh, even though it was through Abram's successful counterattack, and So maybe Bera, maybe it's the king of Sodom who is kind of chief among them. Maybe he's the sovereign and he has the power. On the other hand, you could say that the king of Salem or Melchizedek, uh, he comes forward and he's not only a king, but he is a priest. And, And there's, without taking too much time, there's lots in scripture about Melchizedek that's very fascinating. If you want to just blow your mind, just chase that guy through scripture. Um... The argument could be made that this guy is the sovereign. The argument could also be made that it's Abram. After all, he led this military campaign. He's referred to here as Abram the Hebrew. Now he's a clansman. He has people under his authority. He has alliances. He's been victorious. Maybe this is the time that Abram has arrived. Maybe he is now the king. Maybe he is sovereign. But what happens next in in the narrative makes it very clear. That it's not any of these men, but it is God who is the sovereign king. God most high. And it is actually the king of Salem who credits God for the victory that Abram had. Look at verse 18. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hands. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And here we can see in, in the wording that, that Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brings forward. God most high, El Elyon. The sovereign king is made clear. He affirms it to Abram. You didn't win this victory on your own strength. You trusted the Lord and he made you successful. God most high is the one who was with you, and gave you success. And Abram responded to that by doing something here. It says that he gave him a tenth of everything, what is known as a tithe. And basically this is Abram's way of affirming that what Melchizedek, the king of Salem, said was in fact true and that he believed it. A tenth represents, is, a, is a representative of the whole. And so when Abram gives him a tenth, he's saying not just that, well, I think God did 10%. And I did the rest. He's saying that God is completely sovereign and that he is the one that was victorious. All of this belongs to him. And by giving the tenth, he is representing that he believes that to the king of Salem. But the tension goes on here. Abram has to do something to ensure that God's blessing would be untarnished. Verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. This is a fascinating statement. Bera, the king of Sodom, comes up and says, as though he had the prerogative to do so, tell you what, Abram, I've got a business proposition for you. You just give me the people and you can take 
all of the goods, all of the plunder. You'll be rich beyond your wildest imaginations. You'll be wealthy. And you can imagine the tension that Abram's feeling here. Maybe he's thinking, this is it. God's promised to bless me. Here it is. It's payday. I've hit the lottery. This is how God's going to do it. Very tempting. And Abram is thrown into this situation where he has to exercise discernment and figure out what's going on and what's the motivation here. And bottom line, he determines that if he's going to agree to this plan, it will mean that he's actually dancing with the devil. And in verse 22, he shows his discernment. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I'll accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. And so Abram's refusal to accept this plunder from the king of Sodom demonstrates that he will continue to rely upon the Lord, not upon the spoils of his victory. This is a remarkable turn of events for Abram, who just the the chapter before was this duplicitous man, cowardly husband, who allowed his wife to go to the harem of Pharaoh for fear for his life. And who got rich while that was the case. And now he won't even take a shoelace from the king of Sodom for fear that God's name would be tarnished. He believes that God will bless him. He believes that it will happen in a way that God alone will get the praise. And so he does not compromise. He does not dance with the devil. So, very simply, two questions that we take out of this. Number one, do we trust God enough to engage in these impossible battles? When something is in front of us and it looks like there's no way out, the force is too great, we're outnumbered, it's impossible. Do we have enough trust in God to be active to engage the situation that he will be with us? And secondly, in our success, do we believe in God enough to continually rely upon him even after our hard-won victories or success? It seems to me that all of us have probably a tendency to trust God in one time more than the other. Some people trust God best in the midst of adversity because they know the situation's impossible and only God can help them. Others seem to trust God best when everything is well. Abram shows us that we need to trust God in both situations. When it's impossible and when we've had success, we rely upon the Lord. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot of technical details in this passage and we could get lost in the message. I pray, Lord, that as we look at this, as we hear this narrative and this story and as we see the life of Abram, the theme continues. Do we trust you? And Abram seems to have seasons of success in that and seasons of failure and so do we. So thank you for showing us a man who is, in a sense, all over the map because we can... Uh, we can understand. But Father, may we each one trust you in the way that we need to. If we need to trust you and rely upon you to engage in something that scares us to death, 
May we have enough confidence in who you are to do so. Father, if you've given us success in something, if you've given us a victory, if you've given us a blessing, may we not rely upon that, but continually fall back upon the Lord who is our strength. Thank you again for your word that teaches us in all things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We have a real treat this morning also. We have... We have several baptisms that we get to observe, and I have to tell you that this is just uh, one of the greatest privileges of of serving as a pastor here at the church, in any church, to watch people come forward in obedience to believers' baptism and to demonstrate publicly their love for the Lord, their desire to follow Him, and to ask that we would recognize this in their life and help them in that end. And so we have a real privilege to, to do that this morning.